Well, good morning, everyone. Why don't we uh, start to gather in? And while we wait for those to gather, why don't we turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Uh, 4.13, I'm going to read to verse 18. And uh, we're also going to need to look up um, Matthew 24 uh, later on. But So if, if you guys want to mark your iPads or iPhones, we're going to go to Matthew 24 as well. Everybody uh, settled and found your place? First chapter. Uh, chapter 4, verse 13. Well, why don't we uh, stand and read this passage as a church? 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, verses 13 to 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Let's pray. Lord, I think it's fitting that you say that we are to be comforted by these words, considering the fact that the death is a, is a brutal tragedy. And we know that because of you, we don't have to face death with the same kind of despair as people that don't have you, Lord. Uh, it's, it's comforting to know that you love us so much, you give your life up for us. It's comforting to know that when we die, we can go to be with you in glory. And we're grateful for your sacrifice. And I pray, Lord, that we're, wherever we're at in, in our thinking and in our hearts today, that your word would open us up to your truth and that only your truth be spoken today. Nothing from me, only from you. And that we be encouraged, strengthened, and convicted if necessary. And we just uh, thank you for your love, and we look forward to our time together. In Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> well, my intention today actually was to get back to the Gospel of John. That was my intention. But as I was studying this week, I came across a theological issue that I hadn't really encountered before, and I wasn't really sure how to answer. So you can imagine my uh, a bit of panic when on Thursday night, I decided to ditch my sermon <laughs> and put something together in one day. Uh, but again, my, my concern is that I never preach heresy to you, and I never teach you something that's not true from the scriptures. 
God holds me accountable to a double standard than you in terms of the way I live my life because of me being a teacher. So there is, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's some, some privilege to being a teacher, but there's also huge responsibility, and I take that seriously. So I'm hoping to maybe get back to that next week for you if I can wrestle through that issue. But the cool thing is, is uh, you know, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. So it doesn't matter where I teach in the Bible, it has something to say to us. So maybe we'll be back to John next week. Maybe we won't, but we'll be doing something from the Bible regardless. But since we're not in the book of John, I thought I would choose something that I think is very re relevant to us, considering the events that are going around, that are going around in the world right now. I mean, uh, I've been watching the news uh, pretty regularly at night. Denise and I make it a habit usually to watch a little bit of it just before bed. And it is crazy to see how many natural disasters that are occurring. Cities are being totally devastated, and countries are even being devastated. I think of the flooding in Houston. I think of the hurricane that hit Puerto Rico. I think of the earthquakes in Mexico. Uh, countries in the midst of famines like Sudan and Yemen. But not only natural disasters are hitting our world, we see wars and rumors of wars. We, think, we see groups like ISIS creating havoc as they commit crimes of hate and brutality all throughout the world. We see military organizations performing ethnic cleansing, ethnic cleansing within their own countries. We see presidents testing out nuclear weapons and shooting them across other countries and basically saber-rattling, trying to flex their muscles, threatening that nuclear war is a potentiality for them if anyone touches them. And the list goes on and on and on. But as Christians, we have to be careful how we interpret these tragedies. You see, our response needs to be different than the rest of the world. I'm not saying we shouldn't have remorse over what we see, sympathy, that our hearts shouldn't break for the constant uh, negative impact that these, these things are having on people and humankind throughout the world. So we are to be sensitive, but we also need to interpret these things through the lens of the Bible and what God thinks. And if we look at this and witness all this tragedy and we see it only as a means of remorse, we're missing something big. The truth is that these things must occur in order for the return of Christ to happen. These are only warning signs of the return of Christ. And the return of Christ is something as Christians we need to be grateful for and joyful for. So when we see these things, <coughs> yes, it's tragic. But know that the Lord is near and His time is coming. And that's a celebration for us. So it should shape the way you view the events of, of the world. And I want to show you something in Matthew 24, verse 4, which talks about this. Matthew 24, 4. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples. They've admired the temple. They think it's beautiful, and it was in his day. Jesus has told, just told them the temple is going to be destroyed completely one day. And then they get into this conversation and ask him, well, when is this going to happen? And listen to Jesus' answer in verse 4. He said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and I will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. Say that you are not frightened, for these things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against nation, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. 
turn now to verse 29. So after this, he then talks about the tribulation to come and the Antichrist to come to rule, to rule at that time. And after the Antichrist and the tribulation, he says this in 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the Son of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds and from one end of the sky to the other. This, of course, is what Paul's speaking about in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, the second coming of our Lord. And that's what we sung about with the days of Elijah. So I want to spend some time today looking at the second coming and what that means for us as believers. What are the events going to look like? What's going to happen? So let's look up... Um, Let's look this up here, in, uh, starting in verse 13. But I should actually say before this, let me just say one thing about the Thessalonian church. The Thessalonian church had a very um, keen interest in the return of the Lord. Throughout the book, if you read it, you'll see this, this concern with the return of the Lord, return of the Lord. And it was something very much on their minds. And they had one major question. They had one major question that was plaguing them. What happens to the Christians who die before Jesus comes back? What happens to Christians who die, go to the grave, before the second coming? Do they miss the chance of the resurrection? Will they be taken up to heaven? Or do you have to be alive at the second coming for that to occur? And so they have this, they have kind of anxiety, and a little bit of fear within them as a congregation, not knowing the answer to this question, because they've lost loved ones. They were a persecuted church. I'm, I'm, I'm going to suggest that probably a lot of them had died in persecution already, and... And so Paul finds out that they have this one burning question. They're, they're, they're freaked out that if people die before the second coming, that they won't be resurrected. And so Paul seeks to address this question in verses 413 to 18. That's the, that's the concern he's dealing with. So let's look at it. Let's look at verse 13. He says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. The first thing I want you to notice here is that Paul uses the word asleep. He also uses it in verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. He uses it again in verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. He uses fallen asleep three times in this passage. Now Paul didn't mean literal sleep. He didn't mean literal sleep here. Paul used the word asleep as another way of defining death. So they weren't, yeah, don't think of them as catching logs and, or catching Z's and like snoring. These guys are dead. That's how he defines sleep. And that was a popular way of describing death in the early church and in Jewish culture. I'll give you an example. In Luke, uh, uh, sorry, Luke in Acts chapter 7 verse 60 uses the word asleep to define Stephen's death after he was stoned by Paul and the religious Jewish leaders. Paul is said, or sorry, Stephen is said there to be, have fallen asleep when he was stoned. Jesus in Matthew 9.24, when Jesus raised Jairus, his daughter from the dead, uh, when he saw her and saw her state as being dead, he said, don't worry, the girl's not dead, but she's asleep. 
So we understand that in the Jewish culture and in the early church, the word asleep and dead were euphemisms for the same thing. And so when Paul tells them uh, not to grieve as to the rest of no hope, he's not saying because they're sleeping, literally. It's because you don't have to grieve because they're dead. There's no point in grieving to the same degree as the unbeliever just because they're dead. But notice here, Paul doesn't tell them not to grieve. It's not that they weren't to grieve. I mean, Paul actually describes death as being an enemy in 1 Corinthians 15. He calls it an enemy. So it's not that they weren't to grieve over the loss of their loved ones and death, but they were just to grieve in a different way. Their, whole, their grief was to look different from the unbelieving <coughs> world. Again, that's why he says, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who are, who are dead, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. There's a difference in the way you should grieve over these people. He's going to substantiate why in verse 14 and onward. But I found it, find it interesting that Paul tells them this, that their grief should look different. It should look different than those who are without hope, those who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because in my experience, that's exactly what it's looked like at funerals. I, when I've been to non-Christian funerals, it's a completely different environment and a different kind of language and speech than it is at a Christian funeral. I've been to funerals and I've heard people, I've, I've dealt with people who are non-Christians over the loss of a loved one, and some never recover. Some never recover. They will die with this no hope. They, they cannot agree, they can't get over the loss of a loved one. At the funerals, it's just like an absolute tragedy. And it is a tragedy, don't get me wrong, but there's a, there's a tragedy without any, like, uh, basically closure. And I see that people without hope are just gripped because this world is everything to an unbeliever. This, is, this world is everything, and so when you die in this world and you lose someone you love, that is an absolute tragedy that's almost unbearable to deal with. It can impact on the rest of your life. But as a Christian, in the Christian funerals I've been to, even though death has been painful, it's also been a celebration at those funerals. We were to grieve and then rejoice. And I'll never forget, the last Christian funeral I was at was Ron Redance. And some of you will know the Metcalf family, Jason and Janice, and um, Janice's dad was Ron. And uh, when I went to Ron Redance's funeral at the E-Free Church a number of years ago, it was crazy, those in attendance, and the family's response as they watched Ron's funeral take place. Yeah, there were tears, but after that, there was laughing and joy in the foyer over the food. There must have been, I don't know, you were there, Roger, there must have been like, I don't know, three, four hundred people. There was packed. It was packed. There was laughing and enjoyment in the foyer after a funeral. I've never been to a funeral where that's the focus of attention. And I loved it because there was a lot of older people there, and in the, in, the, in the funeral, they sang it as well with my soul, a cappella. And there was a lot of people who had been trained in voice because of the different age groups. And all the church broke out into harmony parts because a lot of the people who were, you know, 60 and over had all this training. And it was just this beautiful song. And why are they singing it? Because they know this is not their last of wrong. And if, if Janice and the family have to live and die for, like, live for another 30, 40, 50 years, they're going to see their dad again. And so the funeral is completely different. And that's what Paul's saying. You don't have to grieve as do the rest of no hope because there's going to be a chance for reunification. A chance of reunification. 
And this is, and so, but why? How could we all be so sure? Well, look at verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. You know, Paul's point was this. Just as the Thessalonians had come to believe that Jesus had been resurrected from the grave after his death, they could also be assured that those who had died before the second coming would also be resurrected. The, ones, the loved ones that they had lost up to this point, they could be assured that they would be resurrected with Jesus, uh, resurrected uh, because Jesus was resurrected. So basically, if they could grab on the, because Jesus resurrected, they could grab onto his coattails and they could be assured of their own resurrection. They could be assured of this. And the reason of there's such assurance was not only because Jesus was the prototype of the resurrection, but because of their position in him. Look at, I love the description Paul uses of these Thessalonian Christians who have died. Look at what he says. He says, um, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Their position is in Jesus. See, we learn from Paul there's two ways a person can leave this world. We can leave the world in Jesus Christ, or we can be out of Jesus Christ. Of course, in Jesus is a reference to being in relationship with him, which means that out of Jesus would be out of relationship with him. But how was Paul so sure? How could Paul give assurance to these, these people in this church that, that the previous Thessalonian Christians who had died had fallen asleep in Christ? How did he know? How did he know? Because we often say that, you don't know who's a Christian, you can't tell who's a Christian. Have you heard that? Have you used that phrase? Paul knew. He said, I'm telling you, you can be sure that those who have fallen asleep in Christ will be resurrected. But here's why Paul could give them such assurance. Because the Thessalonian church had shown clear-cut signs of genuine repentance and clear-cut signs of commitment to the obedience of Christ after receiving the gospel message. Turn with me to chapter 1, verse 6. This is Paul's addressing the Thessalonian church in his introduction in the first letter. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Who is the us? Paul and Timothy and his companions, okay? He says, you become imitators of us, having received the word in much tribulation, that was true, they were a persecuted church, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord had sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you. And watch this, how you have turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. He says, you have turned from idols. Your formal, your formal life was idolatry. Now, what's not mentioned in here is that part of idol worship in the Greco-Roman culture always accompanied sexual morality. There was temple prostitutes. Uh, sexual morality was part of the worship of these false gods. 
and it was a highly sexual, highly, and it was always linked to, to the worship of their false gods. I mean, the temple in Corinth, for example, was to Aphrodite, right? So you have, uh, you have uh, this high sexual morality. And in chapter 4, chapter 4 of Thessalonians, before, this, uh, before these verses, he speaks to them about their formal immorality. And he actually says here that he wants them to continue on in their repentance and, and even to excel even more. So he's, he's encouraging them to say, you guys have left this, you've left this, but I want to keep encouraging you to keep leaving this. You see, Paul understood that these, these Thessalonians who had died and the current Thessalonians who are living now, he could give them the assurance that they were in Jesus Christ and that when they died, they'd be resurrected because they had had a clear-cut signs of genuine repentance and commitment in obedience to Christ after the gospel. The question I think we need to ask ourselves is, would this be the way we are described today? From the sins that we confessed to the Lord at the moment we received Christ, are we still walking in full repentance to the truth that we learned? Have we shown clear-cut signs of repentance? Are we walking in obedience to Jesus Christ? If we are, I can tell you that you're in Jesus. If you're not, then I can tell you that you're walking a really slippery slope, or you're not in Jesus. Now I imagine when the Thessalonians reached this part of the letter, and they learned that the loved ones who passed away had not missed the second coming, I imagine this was a huge sigh of relief, and a huge burden lifted off their shoulders. But what they still needed to know was how this was all going to take place. So they knew it was going to take place, but they didn't know how it was going to take place. So we pick this up in verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Notice Paul is telling them here that there's an order, an order in which all believers will be taken into glory at the second coming. First, those who are alive, sorry, uh, yeah, those who are alive at the return of Christ will not precede those who died. In other words, not only were the Thessalonians not to see those who had died as already having no hope, they were actually going to be the leading people, take the leading role in the resurrection. So the dead would rise first, and the those who were alive would rise second. It wouldn't be the other way around. It was only going to be after the resurrection of the dead then that those who remained alive on earth were going to experience uh, the resurrection next. So that was kind of a great message, right? Because then they're, they're, they're grieving as if they've had no hope. And Paul says, don't, don't worry, you don't have no hope. They're actually going to beat you to heaven. <laughs> they're going to they're be first, you're going to be second. So it was a great, another great relief for these Thessalonian Christians. Before we move on to verse 16 and verse 17, though, I, um, I do want to address a question that many Christians have wrestled with in the past, and maybe perhaps some of you have wrestled with in the, as well, and maybe are even now. It's a really important question. You see, have you ever wondered or had this conversation, like, what happens to you when you die? What happens to you when you die? If the resurrection of the dead, according to Paul, is a future reality, then what happens when you die now? Where do you go? Are you confined to a coffin where you live in a constant state of claustrophobia and fear? 
Are you, are you, are there a bunch of dead Christians lying around a grave in some kind of soul sleep, waiting to go to glory? What happens? Because if the dead arise at the second coming, what happens when you die? It's a very natural question. Well, we're going to have to look to Scripture to gain our answers. Of course, we are at Genesis House. <laughs> but no, notice, you're going to notice there's nothing to fear. If that's a question that burdens you, there's nothing to fear. Because there's a clear division between what happens to the body and what happens to the soul at the moment of death. Let's turn to Luke 22, 3. And I have it on my PowerPoint here, so don't worry. <laughs> look at this. The thief on the cross. There's three, there's three thieves on the cross. Or sorry, two thieves and one's dying. They're dying with Jesus. And they're battling back and forth and, and about insulting him. And then one comes to faith in Christ while he's dying. And he repents of the sin, he confesses, and then he turns to Jesus and says, Will you um, remember me when you go to glory today? And look what Jesus says. He says, Jesus, remember, oh yeah, sorry. Then he said, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, Truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. So as the Romans are taking him off the cross, and he wouldn't have got a burial, there was a place where they would just throw bodies. Like people who were criminals got thrown, like it was uh, like, uh, they just throw them on this heaps and they would just rot. It was just gross. But anyway, they would throw um, his body onto things. So he's discarded like a pile of rubbish on this heap. And his body is discarded, but his soul would depart and be with Jesus Christ in glory that day. He didn't have a, a resurrected body, but, he just, but his identity, his soul of his being would be go and be with the Lord. Jesus promised them that in that moment. Let's look at Philippians 1, 21 to 24. This is Jesus Paul speaking. He says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So the context is this. Paul's in jail. And execution's a very realistic possibility. And so he's writing this letter to the Philippians from jail, and he's saying, listen, um, you know, I'm torn. I could depart now. If I get executed, I could, be, I could go now and be with Jesus. But it's probably better that I stay for your sake, and, be, and just because I've got more missionary work to do, and I can encourage you more. But if Paul thought he's going to the grave, and he's going to be stuck there until the resurrection of Christ, that wouldn't, this wouldn't make any sense. And the context of this is not the second coming. He's talking about a present reality for him. But Paul knew that when he died, his soul would go to glory and his body would get discarded. So I want to just, there's more verses, by the way, in the scriptures. There's tons of them that talk about this. But if, if this has been a major concern for you, may this bring peace to your restless soul. <laughs> so Paul had made all these promises, he'd given them reassurance. But now he's, uh, he lets them know in verse 16 through 17 how this was all going to transpire. There was going to be a timing for the second coming. Let's read that together. He said, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. 
Within the Christian community, you need to know that there are two common positions that are held to what event is actually being described here. Some of you have heard the word rapture before. Uh, some people think this is the rapture of the church. The rapture is simply that when Jesus comes, he comes halfway down in the sky. He comes halfway down in the clouds. And then those Christians who are alive now and in, in the grave who are dead will, ride, will raise up and will be, be caught up together in the clouds to be with him. And then they will um, go to glory. But the world continues on as is, leaving only the non-Christians. It's a very popular thought, and there's a lot of movies that have been sort of portrayed their version of this event. And many people think this is to occur before the tribulation, before the Antichrist comes. So that hap the rapture happens for seven years. There's a sort of Antichrist present in the world. And then there's a second event, which is called the second coming. The second coming is not the rapture. The second coming is when Jesus comes from the clouds, from heaven, comes down straight to earth. There's no rapture of the Christians. He comes to earth, and he has Armageddon, World War III, defeats the, the world, the nations, in a, in a war, and then he rules for a thousand years uh, on earth. Now, I am so tempted, I was tempted to go off on a 30-minute tangent about the two positions and what those are all are. Here's the point. We can discuss those things in dialogue if you want, because I actually don't think that matters in terms of what's actually being said here. I think there's two key observations I don't want you to miss from this verse alone. <coughs> Here's the first one. Because this event may very well happen in our lifetime, Matthew 24 said, it said, there's going to be earthquakes, there's going to be famines, there's going to be rumors of wars, there's going to be wars. These are just the beginning of birth pangs. Then the Antichrist will come, and then I'm coming. We are in this incredible stage where this is very much the stage set for us as Christian people. We could be very much alive when Jesus comes back. So this is important. Here's what, Jesus, here's what Paul wants these people to know. That when Jesus returns, those who are still alive will also be resurrected like the dead. And that from that moment, we will always be with the Lord. That's the key thing he wants them to take away. You will always be with the Lord. See, that's what heaven's about. That's what heaven's about. It's about being with the Lord. We spoke about this in John 14 a couple months ago. Um, that the whole purpose of heaven is to be with Jesus Christ. And I think it's important to remember this, because as Christians, we off, I hear people talking this way, well, I can't wait to go to glory. Why? Well, I just want to get out of the suffering I'm in. Okay? I want to see my grandma. Okay? Uh, I'm hoping my dog is there. Uh, okay. I want to see, like, my dad. Okay? How come Paul doesn't say, by the way, when you're caught up in the air together with Jesus, you're always going to be with your grandma. You're always going to be playing with your dog. You're always going to, you're going to be relieved from suffering. Because Paul knows that's not the point of heaven. He doesn't give a rip about that. The point is, you're going to, Jesus Christ is going to be there. And the only reason why you're in heaven is because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. <laughs> you're not, you have to remember that. You have, you've got nothing to offer God in terms of getting to heaven. It's because of what he did on the cross that brought you to heaven. And that's why Paul focuses on him being the, the reason by which there's to be celebration in the Thessalonian church. And may that be said about us too. These, these were meant to be words of encouragement to them. To know you haven't only missed Jesus coming back. He's going to be the one that comes and gets you and brings you back. And you'll always be with him. So if, if yours and mine thinking about heaven has not been focused on the, on the focus of the work of Christ. And who he is. May this be a word of uh, exhortation to you and I. And when you get there. 
you'll recognize, you'll recognize at that moment why it's all about Him. Your, yours and our brain can't fully comprehend this until we actually get there. But the second reason I think Paul, well, the second observation I want to bring out of this passage is really important, and it needs to be said because of its implications, and yet it's so obvious, is that, don't miss this church, that the Lord is coming back. The Lord is coming back. He is returning. Why would that matter to us? Well, let me give you an illustration. If you and I knew, I mean, lots of people have predicted with miserable failure, but if you and I knew for sure that Jesus Christ was coming back a week today, and I told you he was coming at 10.30 in the morning next Sunday, would that change how your week would look coming up? Would it look different than the last week you just had? Would it look different than the last month you've just lived? Would it look different than the last year you've just lived? Would it change the, last, the way you've lived over the last 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years? If you knew it was coming back, how much would you seek to change the choices you make this week? How much would you seek to change your thought life this week? knowing that he was coming back in seven days. Would you and I, for example, change the way we reflect our anger towards other people? Would we check our temper more regularly? Would we seek to stop telling lies and just be truthful? Would we make an effort to overlook wrongs instead of justice, seeking justice? Would we seek to forgive those we've chosen not to forgive? Would we treat our spouses a little differently this week in terms of how we loved and served them? Would we seek to spend more time with our kids and worrying less about work? Would we seek to be more generous with our possessions and time and care about others? Would we put all forms of sexual immorality away? Would we seek to stop all the addictions that we're addicted to? For the kids in here, would we seek to start trying to obey our parents more? Would we seek to tell people more about Jesus Christ? They're described in here in verse 13 as having no hope. We are described as having hope. Why aren't we living like we have hope? If you believe and I believe we have hope, why are we letting our fears, insecurities, because that's what they are, their fears and insecurities, determining our, our choices in the conversations we have and who we speak to? See, it's a simple observation, friends, that the, the Lord is coming back, but the way we live often reflects like we don't believe it's true. If all of you in here would say, I would be willing to change my week this week compared to last week, you and I, have, that, that's a revelation of where we're at in our walk with the Lord and our understanding about the imminence of Christ's return. See, he says in the next chapter, in verse 5, chapter 5, he says, Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night. Right? So he's saying that he's going to come, and you won't, even, you won't even be expecting it. And people will be saying, peace and safety, peace and safety, and yet um, they'll be thinking everything's going well, and Jesus will show up just like that. 
if our answer to these questions, church, is that there be not much change in our lives this week because of last week or last month or last year, then that's awesome. What it shows then is that you're living right and you're living within the will of God and His desires for life. But if your answer to this question is there is a lot that needs to change, it just shows you how far step out you and I are out with God. How far we are missing the mark. And the issue, church, is that we're, He's coming back and all the warning signs are here and we don't know when, but the question is, will you and I be ready? Now we consider the fragility of the Thessalonians' emotions due to their misunderstandings of the death of their loved ones in the end time events. You can see why Paul now concludes the way he does in verse 18. After giving this wonderful word of encouragement and hope, he says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. These words are to bring comfort to us as well, church. You know, God's arms and his love for us is unbelievable and we can't even fathom it if we feel convicted by what was just heard he will forgive he will forgive and embrace you fully for anything but that has been done but there needs to be like the thessalonians a turning a turning from the previous life and an embracing of jesus christ and the truth of the gospel let's go through the lessons now together as a church first lesson is this as believers, there is no need to fear the grave, knowing that when we die, our soul will depart to be with Christ. There's no reason to fear the grave, church. Your body may rot in the grave, and you could be exhumed and all there is a bunch of bones, but your soul is in glory if you're in Jesus Christ. Your soul is in glory, and that's the key thing you have to remember. Philippians 1, Luke, Luke uh, with Jesus on the, uh, the thief on the cross, makes that abundantly clear. Second lesson, as believers, our new resurrected bodies will be reunited with our souls at the return of Christ. So again, this is clear from here and clear from other parts of scripture that when you get your new body, the, the spiritual body, it will be reunited at the second coming of Jesus. Those who have died will get their bodies first. And if, us, if we're alive in this church, when he comes back, we will be translated from this body into a, a body like Jesus had when he appeared to the disciples, um, in the la uh, when he appeared to Thomas, and so on and so forth. So we're going to have this glorified new body. The third lesson, uh, dead or alive, all believers can be described as being in Jesus Christ. Right? Verse 14. Verse 14, a beautiful verse. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Dead or alive, uh, we can be described as being in Jesus as believers. And finally, to be fully assured that one is in Jesus, one must have fully turned from the sins in their life that once defined them. He said to the Thessalonian church back in chapter 1, you've turned from uh, false idols to a living God. You've turned. There's been a complete change. I have no need to say anything about you to the, any other church because you guys are a role model for what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. If you want to be assured, church, and I want to be assured that we are in Christ, 
that it's not about the sinner's prayer. The question is, have we turned from the sin of the life that wants to find us? That's what Paul's looking for. That's what Jesus is looking for. That's what we practice. Again, it's not one that one sin takes you out here and there. It's not that you don't have to be sinless. It's when you're practicing in the category of sin in which Christ has redeemed you from, that which you are known for. We spoke about this in John 17. If you missed that sermon, you can, you can listen to it online. It's called, um, Do We Have to Be Perfect to Be a Christian? I, I deal with that in detail. I'm sure there's a lot more lessons that could be said and many more things to be spoken about. So I'd be very curious to have you weigh in. And if you want to talk about anything uh, to do with the end times and whatnot, we can handle that now.